All right, we'll now hear today's scripture reading, uh, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, If I were to ask you, uh, on what have you built your life, uh, how would you answer that question? Uh, uh, What do you consider to be the firmest foundation on which to build your life? And I implore you to answer that question carefully. And if you're a Christian, you're not allowed to give a Sunday school answer that says, Jesus. Okay? Press yourself. Uh, I'll tell you now that I am going to ask you that question several times uh, throughout the rest of today, because if we cannot honestly answer that question on what do we build our lives, we will never fully understand ourselves, others, or most importantly, God himself. Now, over the course of human history, there have been uh, many different perspectives on what builds a strong foundation for civilization or for life. I mean, everything from capitalism to socialism, uh, from democracy to a monarchy, from the individualized nuclear family to communal tribes, uh, from pacifism to colonialism or collectivism to individualism, all of these have been an attempt at structuring society and life uh, in ways that some believe are best to do so. Uh, Over the course of human history, we've seen a variety of different ways that people have tried to build a foundation. Now, of course, some of those foundations have worked out better than others, but in their most basic form, they are attempts at building a foundation for life and society. And no one chooses to structure their society or their life 
in a way because they think it will be some kind of abject failure. Instead, they choose it because they seem like it makes the most sense. And I draw all that out to say, I know that there are ways in which we build our lives and we build our lives on something, some foundation, because we assume it to be what's best for our life. It's the best at trying to make sense of our lives. And here in the last section of Hebrews 12, the author really challenges us in the ways that we use our foundations. Because what we see in this passage, we essentially see two different approaches to foundations. One of, the, one of those uh, uh, perspectives, one of those approaches, results in terror, which we'll see in a minute, because it's a shakable foundation. But then there's another approach that results in confidence because it's an unshakable foundation. But here's the rub. Most of us, even if you know the right Sunday school answer about how we go about building our lives and our foundations, functionally, we live lives often built on crumbling foundations. And so what I want to do today, I want to consider foundations of terror. I want to consider foundations of confidence. And then finally, to consider foundations received. Okay? Let me explain to you what I mean. First, foundations of terror. Uh, What in the world does that mean? a foundation of terror. Well, if you read verses here in a passage, 18 through 21, I'm not sure what other word better describes what's taking place there. Let me reread that for you quickly. Verse 18. Uh, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or Uh, to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no uh, no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What in the world is happening there? Well, though it's not explicitly stated, what's happening is the author is referring back to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, uh, particularly with what was happening in Exodus, what you can read about in Exodus 19 and 20, and then also Deuteronomy 4 and 5. At this mountain, God had put on full display his power and his might before the people. And so as a result of that, what they experienced, what they saw was fire and darkness, and storms, and a trumpet blast, and thunder, and a voice, all of which struck terror in the people. In fact, they became so afraid that they begged for it to stop, and they asked Moses to just communicate to them whatever God communicated to him. And then in verse 21, uh, it says that Moses himself was terrified. Now, here's what's interesting about verse 21. Nowhere in Exodus 19 and 20 or in Deuteronomy 4 and 5 do we see Moses terrified. Rather, do you know where we see Moses terrified? It's not until Deuteronomy 9 in response to God's anger against Israel for worshiping the golden calf. That's where we see Moses terrified. Now put all that together. What are we to do with this terror 
being experienced by the people of Israel and by Moses. Well, bottom line, here's what we need to know. God is terrifying. And he is absolutely, especially terrifying when we reject or rebel against him. And if we do not see God, as verse 29 states, as this consuming fire, then we do not actually know God. And to be clear, a consuming fire is a fire that absolutely consumes and burns and levels everything in its path. And that ought to produce fear. Now, what does that have to do with foundations? Well, the foundations on which we build our lives determine the extent to which we experience fear before God. And when I say fear, I don't mean like the, you know, having awe or reverence or respect for God. I mean literal fear. Depending on your foundation on which you've built your life, you ought to be either experience confidence, which we'll get to, or fear. Moses was terrified because Israel had built their foundation on the golden calf, meaning they assumed that the idol was going to provide them a firm foundation on which they could put their hopes and put their trusts. Let me read for you quickly the account of what was taking place there. It says this uh, in Exodus uh, 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me so that all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, what's happening there? The people of Israel, they doubted that God, they doubted all of God's promises. And as a result, they sought after something else on which they could put their hopes and their trusts. They desired another foundation on which to build their lives. And lest we assume human nature has somehow changed since then, we do the same thing all the time. Again, I return to the question that I began with. What is the foundation on which we have built our life? Where do we put our hope and our trust to make sense of our lives? We all have some perspective about what the most firm foundation on which we ought to build our, build our lives should be. You know, if you are a traditionalist, your firm foundation is probably that you need to be a good and moral person who largely keeps your head down but doesn't really make any waves and just takes care of your family. If you are more of a modernist, your firm foundation is likely working hard in order to achieve the highest levels of success. You know, if you're young and allured by many of the postmodern ideas of just knocking down all structures and expectations, your firm foundation is likely charting your own course, doing you, and rejecting any idea that conflicts with your passions. You know, on a societal level, this happens 
all the time as well. You know, in, in my lifetime, I don't know that I have ever seen people more trust the foundations of political ideology more than what we're seeing right now. I mean, it, it's incredibly disheartening to see people across the political spectrum put their trust in policies and politicians. It's disturbing. The extent to which we seek foundations of power or economic stability or unhindered personal autonomy that cares nothing for the well-being of others. And here is where that terror comes in. When we come before God with whatever foundation that we've used, those foundations crumble, absolutely crumble under the weight of God's glory and holiness and perfection. When we are in his presence with any other foundation, everything about who we are crumbles before him. And we become painfully aware of our inadequacies and our failures, and they're put on full display. And as a result, we experience, we will experience that, tale, that terror. And you know what else is probably even more disturbing? Is the ways that Christians really do get wrapped up in all of this. You know, one of the most disturbing uh, aspects of the golden calf incident, I actually didn't read to you, but it comes in verse 5 of Exodus 32. You know, so after the Israelites have created this idol and they proclaim that it was that God that had brought them out of Egypt, it says this, it goes on to say, that when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced... Tomorrow, there will be a feast and a festival to the Lord. You know what that means? It means that they took the idol and they tried to use the idol as a means of worshiping the Lord, Yahweh. They really assumed that their other foundation could be woven into their worship of the true and living God. And here's what's interesting about that. Other foundations make us completely disillusioned. Because you know what all of those other foundations assume? All of those other foundations, the foundations of being moral or working hard or being driven or being free or a foundation of political ideology, they all assume that our goodness and our, that we have, we're inherently good, that we are inherently sufficient to understand what is best. I mean, all of them do, don't they? They all assume that we are in control. They all assume that we know what is best and how we can be best. But when we stand before God, all that disillusionment melts away. It crumbles. It crushes us. You know, all throughout Scripture, when God reveals his holiness to man, do you know what the experience is for that person? Almost universally, that experience is fear and trembling. You know, when Isaiah saw the Lord and God revealed to him a, a, a cloaked version of himself, seated on a throne, high and exalted, do you know what Isaiah's response was? Woe to me, I am ruined. I mean, what is that? When he came before God, he became painfully aware of how incredibly inadequate he was. And so I wonder, if God were to come in power and might like he did at Mount Sinai, 
Could the foundation on which you built your life, that which you hope in, would it be able to bear the weight of the majesty of God? If not, your response, likely in his presence, would be absolute fear. So, if that's a foundation, these other foundations that bring fear, I've spoken of another foundation that doesn't bring fear but brings confidence when we are before the power and might and majesty of God. And so let's consider that foundation of confidence. You know, I know that for many, the idea of God bringing terror is a completely foreign concept. Right? We tend to think about God as our friend or as some uh, gentle, benevolent force, or we consider him, as we talked about last week, as our loving father, and none of that is wrong. God is our friend. He is benevolent, and he is a loving father. So how do we then reconcile this idea of God being those things, but God also being a God that produces terror? Well, to understand that, we need to look at what the author says here in the second part of our passage. So in the beginning part of our part of our passion, verse, passage, in verse 18, he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. In other words, what he's saying is you have not come before the mountain that produces fear. Right? He's talking to Christians here. Rather, he says there's another mountain that they've come before. Verse 22, he says, you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. What is happening there? Well, we are given a picture that is the exact opposite of what's happening in the first paragraph. The first paragraph describes coming before God and experiencing terror because the foundations cannot bear the weight of his glory. But now there's another foundation being described where there's joy and rejoicing and radiant beauty. And that foundation is called Mount Zion, the heavenly city, a city that one can be welcomed into. Now, what is that? Well, you know, in the Bible, this idea of heavenly city, heaven is uh, biblically very different than I think maybe culturally we tend to think about heaven. See, in the Bible, the Bible doesn't teach that certainly that the universe is going to devolve into nothingness, but the Bible also doesn't teach that heaven is some kind of disembodied, ethereal place that we go completely detached from reality. Rather, the Bible teaches that heaven is actually described as a city. And it's a city that we see in Revelation 21 that will one day descend. It is a city that comes as part of this new heaven and the new earth that God, is, uh, that God has in store. He is redeeming all things into this new heavens and new earth. It is a city marked by peace and joy and rest and justice. A city that in many ways feels like the exact opposite of how we are experiencing cities today. And here is why that matters in the context of our passage. The city already exists. This heavenly city already exists. And God in his timing will cause that city to merge and reunite with us here. 
But until that day comes, we can have this foretaste of it through the community that God has established here on earth. See, the church or those who have experienced the grace of God are a foreshadowing of the citizenship of heaven, Philippians 3 tells us. And when those who have experienced God's grace have become a citizen of this heavenly city, that reality now becomes the foundation on which we build our lives. The coming city is our foundation now. And that foundation is not one of fear and trembling, but rather joy-filled confidence because it is not a foundation that has been established by us. It is a foundation that God himself has established for us. And when our minds are on that, when we are building our lives now on a foundation of a city that is to fully come one day, that completely changes how we approach life in the present right now. I mean, it completely changes how we approach the most basic elements of life. I mean, think about how your job or your families or your relationships or your politics or your interactions with others change when we no longer feel compelled to build our lives on fragile foundations now. You know, I've uh, I said earlier that it's unsettling how in recent days, how apparent people's foundations have been rooted in politicians in recent days. And over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen that pretty, uh, pretty starkly. Uh, we've had over the last couple of weeks uh, the Democratic and the Republican National Conventions. Uh, and both conventions, interestingly to me, have shared one striking element in all of the speeches that we've heard coming from them. Of course, we see this demonizing of each other, which is to be expected. But interestingly, they both play on the fears of those listening. That if we do not build our lives on their political platform, it will be the end of our way of life, it will be the end of democracy, and maybe even the end of our actual lives. And for those whose lives are not built on a firm foundation outside of earthly foundations, you're going to fall for it. But when our lives are built on a firm foundation, on this city of God, it's then that we are not shaken. We are not shaken when our political rivals win. And that's not to say that we won't be disappointed or that we don't want to continue to advocate, but we won't be shaken. And there are so many who are shaken right now. And some of you here that are listening to me now are shaken because you've built your foundation on a crumbling foundation that will fail you. And you ought to fear. But there's a foundation that comes with confidence, an unshakable one. And when our lives are firmly rooted in the city of God, we can take confidence in knowing that nothing we experience now will ever remove that firm foundation from underneath us. But as we look at verse 28, it's interesting to me that there's another element that's being described there. Let me just read for you quickly. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. What does it mean that this foundation, this kingdom, is a kingdom that's received? Let's look at that finally. Look at verse 23. 
It says that this city of God is for the church of the firstborn. What is that? Well, in the Bible, whenever you see the firstborn being referenced, it's important and it's worth noting that the firstborn of the family was the one who took the full inheritance of the family. All the family's wealth and prestige and access were given to the firstborn. And as a result, they became responsible for the whole family. They represented the whole family. And here's what's interesting about that term, church of the firstborn. Over and over again in the New Testament, there is one person who is time and time again called the firstborn. That being Jesus Christ. Jesus, time and time again, is called the firstborn, which means all the privileges that come as being the firstborn belong to Jesus. This great kingdom is an inheritance of Jesus. So to be part of the church of the firstborn is to be part of that which belongs to Jesus. I mean, this is fundamentally the gospel, my friends. This gospel is that which is rightly Jesus's also becomes ours. Romans 8 says that we are co-heirs with Christ in all of this. And that means that for those who are in Christ, all that belongs to Jesus belongs to you, including this kingdom, this foundation that is to come. This kingdom that can be ours is a kingdom that is received through Jesus. This unshakable foundation is ours in him. And how do we receive it? Well, you receive it by seeing what he did to ensure that you were able to become a co-heir. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, consider the description of Jesus' death throughout the New Testament Gospels. The descriptions of that day was that there were earthquakes, that there was darkness, that rocks split, that it was a terrifying sight. It was Mount Sinai all over again. And why did that darkness come? It's because Jesus, on the cross, took upon himself the terror that comes as a result of false foundations. And he was crushed by the power and the majesty of God, not because he had a false foundation, but because we did. And so in our place, he puts himself under the full weight of God's wrath. The glory of God crushes him for us. And verse 23 speaks of God as a judge. Well, on the cross, we see Jesus as fully man taking our place. But we also know that he is fully God being judged for us. The judge became the judged so that we might no longer stand condemned, but now justified and free. And not just justified, but now co-heirs with Christ. Christ, he is our cornerstone on which we are, uh, which our lives ought to be built. Jesus is our foundation that will never be shaken. He is why we can stand before a perfect, holy, glorious, awesome God with confidence and not fear. And I'll end with this. Let me reread for you quickly verse 26 and 27. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he promised, one more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that we, what cannot be shaken remains. Here's what I want to leave you with. There is coming a day when God will speak, and heaven and earth will shake, and all that is going to remain is that which is unshakable. And so when that day comes, on what will you be standing? I ask you again, now what I asked you in the beginning, what is the foundation on which you build your life, your hope, your trust? Let that firm foundation be received that comes by trusting in Jesus, our cornerstone, our solid rock, the firstborn, the one who has taken judgment that we deserve upon himself. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are glorious, mighty, powerful, and that, God, we ought to rightly be terrified before you if we are not standing on a firm foundation. But, God, we also thank you that in your love and in your grace and mercy, you have given to us an unshakable foundation, that foundation being our Savior, Jesus that as we put our trust and hope in him, as we see him on the cross being crushed for us, we can have confidence that we ourselves will not be crushed. For we stand on an unshakable foundation, Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, our solid rock. Would you by, our, by your spirit lead us to trust him all the more, that we might always have confidence before you. We ask all this. In Jesus' name, amen.